It's the day after the fight, and I've got one nasty bruise on my left cheek. Last night, the shot to the side of my head hurt more, but this morning, that faded, and instead, the cheek flared up. It would seem I should spend day one of my 30-day suspension in bed, but I'm out early to meet with my union rep, Lenny, so we can file an appeal. Pro forma, as they say, since it most certainly will be rejected. While showering, I realize I just want to stay under this stream of hot water. Everything hurts again, but not due to Hugo Concepcion. He gets credit for the shiner, but my brain and my spirit and my heart all hurt. Missing Ben hurts so much, even an Inuit couldn't devise enough words to catalog the pain. The drain swallows it all. I step outside, and it's scorching hot, even for August. Though I'm sure the executive vice president of corporate communications at ExxonMobil could cite many paid-off scientists to deny anything is amiss, clearly the world is heating up. I'm already aware my world is heating up. But here's evidence it's the entire world. Lovey is parked near St. Rita's, and as I walk, my phone rings. Annabelle, my old mentor. I stop under a tree, and for once, I steer the conversation toward her, out of guilt for all the hours detailing my messy life lately. But we both know it's a matter of time before we exhaust her vacation on the Cape and her daughter's pregnancy. How are things going with the courts, Mike? I explain the days are ticking, and soon either Ben will be back with me or else his mother will be subject to arrest in 92 countries worldwide, from Albania to Zimbabwe, all signatories to the Hague Convention. That poor child, she sighs. How are things otherwise? I laugh sarcastically. Well, I was just suspended without pay for almost causing a mid-air collision. My God! And last night, I got my ass kicked in a boxing ring. Good Lord! I'm so sorry. And then she says what I wish no one would ever say. What else could go wrong for you, sweetie? I turn the corner near the church, and Annabelle's answer is right before my eyes. My station wagon is still parked at the curb, but the tailgate window is missing. I once read that Queens boasts the highest auto theft rates of any American county. The sight of broken glass on these streets is as common as dog shit. But even as I tell Annabelle I'll have to call her back as I step over the shards to inspect, I see there's no glass at all in the carpeted rear of the wagon. In other words, this window was knocked out, not in. Later, when I try using any of three dead credit cards to pay at Safelight, the manager explains it. This wasn't the work of a typical queen's thief or punk. The heat came so intense because inside my car, slowly building to such proportions, that Lovey simply burst. And here I've been thinking my life is imploding. Apparently, it's the opposite. One thing I truly wish people would stop saying is, anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger and wiser. I'd much rather be weaker and dumber. I'm in a foul disposition, and I point to my bruised face, telling Paco 
I'm a loser. For weeks, that anger Judge Westfall accused me of harboring has flared up in here. He leans back. So these two monks set out on this journey of about 500 miles to another monastery. I'm in no mood today, so I stare at him. Why? Um, why? Well, they had to deliver these important fucking parchments they just transcribed. Why not scan them and send them as PDFs? Paco's face hardens. You know, I used to get into rumbles with smart-ass Irish guys like you in Hell's Kitchen. I steal from George Carlin. I thought you grew up in Hell's Breakfast Nook. Now he ignores me. So, anyway... They're from a very strict order. They're not allowed near women. Can't speak to them, touch them, nothing. And they come to this stream with two nuns sitting there crying. So, the nuns explain one can't get the cross on her own because she's crippled. Excuse me. Handicapped. So, the younger monk, he straps her on his back and he swims across. Then they thank him and they go their own ways. But the older monk, he's in shock. And for the rest of the day, it's all he talks about. How could you do it? Touch a woman. Carry her on your back. You know the rules. On and on. And finally, the young monk stops. And he says, Brother, I only carried that woman for two minutes. But you've been carrying her for seven hours. I continue staring. Then I say, Hate to tell you your business, but these allegories... They're supposed to relate to the patient. He chuckles. Keep at it. Keep punching. Should have had this attitude the other night. Hugo would have had little fucking birdies tweeting over his head instead of you. Fuck you. Now Paco smiles. I love you too, my man. Listen up. You're at a critical fucking juncture. I'm not talking about us getting the kid back. We'll get him back. I'm not worried about that. But this ex-wife, you're going to have to make decisions. You can be like that old monk and you can carry this psycho around with you the rest of your life. Every barroom in America has some guy pounding back shots and griping about that bitch that fucked him over. You can be that guy. Or you can engage with her when you have to, like to get the kid back. And then disengage and brush her aside. You really want to carry her around? The anger's left me, and we both know it. I say nothing. And another thing, there's a big fucking difference between losing and being a loser. We all lose. But becoming a loser, that's a choice. You're going to have to decide how this will shape you. Then he segues and asks, how come I didn't work you go inside like we agreed? And just as it all began so quickly, maybe now it will conclude quickly as well. Ever since the young man in Israel answered the telephone recently, I've focused just a little more intently each time I've dialed. It's early morning, and I'm at home, and I punch by rote. When it's picked up on the second ring, somehow I'm not surprised. Hello! I know it's Casper. And I know I have a lot to remember. My attorneys have drilled me on what I shouldn't say, but mostly they've insisted I remain calm and do not, under any circumstances, lose my temper. Death threats 
clearly are off the table. This is Michael Mullen. Ah, yes. Where is my son? He clears his throat. Yes, uh, he is with his mother. And where is she? She is with you, yes. With me? Is there no end in sight ever to all this insanity? I count three very long seconds. What are you talking about? She is with you? They left for New York one week ago. New York? A week ago? Again. Three seconds. Last week? I count to one. I have no idea. She hasn't contacted me. Yes? I am sure you should call her father or mother. I'll do that. As I prepare to hit end call, I hear him. His voice retains its usual flatness, but rises slightly. I would like to ask you... I pause. What? I would like to know why you want to put Benji's mother in... Jail? He pronounces this last word as if it has two syllables. I start to count again, but he's not done. I think that is rather unfair, not only to her, but to Benji, yes? Yeah, well, abduction is rather unfair, too, I shoot back, but then realize there's no advantage in engaging. I'm determined for once to remain in control of my vocal cords. There was no abdu... I hit that red button, and he's gone. Seven weeks. I can't let myself think it might soon be over. That two months of agony may come to a close. Within hours, I could be hugging Ben, who may be only blocks away. I run the distance of five houses and burst in on my mother. Her dining room will serve as command center until this crisis is successfully resolved. Hillary takes the unprecedented step of coming out to Queens when there's no court date scheduled in Jamaica. Eventually, of course, I'll be billed for these hours and her round-trip Lincoln Town car. My mother is just thankful Katie arrives first so they can present the pastries Katie brought alongside the coffee that's brewing. Ma, Katie cries out, you worried about getting Benji back or the damn cheese buns? My mother stares at her. You act like it's one or the other. I won't lie. They're incredible buns from the kosher bakery. Katie turns. To think he might have been in Queens. That bitch. Watch that language, my mother says as Hillary knocks on the screen door. The four of us talk, but my head is buzzing and I'm having trouble concentrating. They munch and drink, but I'm too nervous. It's taken all my remaining restraint not to bolt over to her parents' house, but I'm determined to execute this properly. Finally, the plan is hammered out. I'm to visit the local precinct, which is just a few blocks from their house, and request an officer accompany me to the stoop. Hillary presents me with the necessary documents from Jamaica and The Hague 
that will answer all legal questions. Katie should accompany me. Hillary thinks a female presence will help defuse any potential confrontation. My lawyer shouldn't be there because her lawyer won't be there, and courts frown on situations where only one side is represented by counsel. We are not to discuss the case at all with her or her family. All questions should be referred to Hillary by whoever represents her now. We're to ask Ben to come with us, and then we're to leave with him. If not, the police will intervene, and Ben should not return to her at all until a court date has been scheduled to address abduction, contempt, and perjury. We all nod. Hillary says, These are delicious, Mrs. Mullen. Please take the last two with you, my mother implores. Too bad you don't have a rabbi on your side of the family. My mother looks up. Michael's cousin is a Catholic priest. Hillary smiles. Yes, a priest is excellent. No offense, Kate. Katie smirks. So much for my female presence. Now I'm en route to an old school rectory in Little Neck. There's an odd whistling sound as I exceed the speed limit on Northern Boulevard. Apparently, that new tailgate window doesn't sit right. I've called ahead, and my cousin Desmond promises to wait out front. I pull up, and there he is, wearing a Mets cap and a Darrell Strawberry number 18 jersey. I stick my head out the window and politely ask him to run back inside and change into the black suit and Roman collar which is what this is all about. A few minutes later, he slides in beside me, and I awkwardly attempt a hug while the shoulder strap strains. You know, hey, Des. Thanks. Desmond smiles. Sorry to hear you're in such shit, Mikey. I pull away and execute a dangerous and illegal U-turn. I always like Desmond. My cousin speaks up. Know what I was thinking before? Remember that time, we were probably about six, at your father's engine company down in Rockaway? The Nuthouse. Right. Well, we had this, like, open house, remember? All the trucks parked outside, the ladders and the hoses, and we were playing on this big fire truck wearing red hats, and you were behind the wheel. I said, look, Mikey, the keys. And you looked at me like, what the heck? You hit the ignition button and all the hell broke loose. Two dozen kids all jumping off at once. Your father running up. He was not amused. I smile as we speed west. I'd forgotten that. Your mom's worried about you, he says, as if it's a natural segue. She says these days you're a, a lost soul. Her words. Yep, That's me. You talk to her much? Well, let's put it this way. We're talking more since your marital problems. I'm driving too fast and making a conscious effort to slow down. Listen, Des, I want to be up front. I really appreciate this. You're doing a mitzvah. Desmond chuckles. But I can't be hypocritical. I mean, I'm using you your collar, your presence, just to get through this nightmare. I'm still an agnostic. That's not going to change. But I'll do anything I can 
if it helps me get Ben back. I get it. I think he's done, but he's not. You know, people have used collars to do terrible things, but getting Ben back is a good thing, so it's cool. Then he lightens the mood by noting the Mets finally added some hitting to go along with all that pitching. Now we're outside the precinct. Every New Yorker knows cars are brazenly double-parked and even triple-parked in front of only two institutions, firehouses and police stations. I pull up alongside a junked Oldsmobile with no license plates and dust inches thick on all windows, a long-forgotten impound. How could they ticket me right out front? Desmond follows me inside. I'm shamelessly willing to play any cards available, even pitching Blarney about the old sod with a Sergeant Corrigan, or Dunphy, O'Manion, Callahan. Instead, we walk to the desk and meet Sergeant Hui Eng. He listens intently, reads the court order, and then strokes his face. Here's the deal, he says finally. We're all about avoiding situations, not diffusing them. We'd rather not have a situation, period. And sometimes, I mean, I know it's ironic, but even though we're peace officers, well, our very presence escalates things. I can understand that, says Desmond. Thank you, Father. So here's the deal. I'm suggesting you two go over to the house by yourselves. To be honest, I really don't think you'll have a problem, but I'm going to have a unit parked one block away. By the bagel store? He slides me a card. That's my direct number. If there's a problem, then call and we'll be there. He nods at us. Good luck. Outside, Desmond observes Sergeant Eng really knows his stuff. Of course, my Uncle Tim, his father, spent 25 years on the job, so this is no small compliment. As I start the engine, I realize my hands are shaking. I breathe deeply and consciously exhale, like I should have done in the ring with Hugo. Desmond reaches over and grasps my arm. We're going to get your boy back, Mike. It's almost over. Rabbi Cohen answers the door and can't hide his disappointment at seeing me on his stoop. Then he spots Desmond, and a smile creeps onto that lined face, even though they haven't spoken since our wedding. Hello, Father. Hello, Mike. My cousin speaks first. It's been a while, Rabbi. I hope you're well. I'll make you a deal. I'll pray for you. You pray for me. How's that? Desmond bows. Done and done. As always, I cough. Then I nod at my ex-father-in-law. Rabbi, is she here? No, she's, she's taking a yoga class. Is Ben here? He nods. Could you please get him? I have a court order. Can't we wait till she gets... No. There are officers just down the street. Please get him. The rabbi sighs, opening the door wider. And there he is. For the first time in months, I'm staring at my son. Later, Desmond will tell me I involuntarily moan. 
Ben is half hidden behind a coat rack, peering out at me with large blue eyes. But he doesn't look at all happy. In fact, he looks downright terrified. And he makes no effort to come closer. Somehow I notice his hair is twice as long as usual and falls disheveled. To his credit, Rabbi Cohen intervenes. Benji, your dad's here, and your Uncle Desmond. Are you all set for a visit? My brain registers the word visit, but there are more pressing issues now. Hey, Ben, I call out. How you doing, buddy? He doesn't answer and looks up at his grandfather for guidance. The rabbi produces a child's backpack I've never seen with a French flag on the front. Ben kisses him, then tentatively steps onto the stoop. I've been waiting forever, and I throw my arms around him, but it's like hugging a child mannequin. I turn to my cousin. Remember Uncle Des, buddy? He holds up a priestly hand. High five, Ben! Ben slaps his palm, and for a moment I think he'll smile. I thank the rabbi, then guide Ben down the stoop. We're at the car within seconds, and I strap him in. We settle in up front, and for a moment I rest my head on the steering wheel. Oh, God! Desmond smiles. Oh, who? I finally laugh, though we both know it's pure relief. After we pull away from the curb, I look into the mirror, and I see Ben has turned away, staring sideways. Hey, buddy, you want to hear the Beatles? Oh, Desmond says, I love the Beatles. Us too, right, buddy? Ben doesn't answer, and my cousin slips in rubber sole. The music starts, and I say to my son, Someday you can drive my car. Drive lovey. Okay, baby? Finally, Ben turns. I'm not a baby, he says softly. He's been back for four minutes, and already I've screwed up. No, I know. I mean, the song. Baby, you can drive my... That song is stupid, he says to the side window. Lovey is stupid. I stop speaking. After long minutes, I pull onto our street but then remember Katie was taking my mother to the beauty parlor, so I drive four more blocks and park behind Katie's car. Come on, I say to the boy. From the sidewalk, we can see my mother under a dryer and Katie texting in the waiting area. The three of us walk in, and Ben lights up when he sees his grandmother. He pulls away from me and runs to my mother, who welcomes him with both arms. She's shedding tears, a rarity for her. Bennington! Katie is on her feet and across the room and squeezing any available part of him. The old Italian woman working the dryer has both hands on her cheeks and smiles at Desmond. She's been privy to this drama for the entire seven weeks. And Ben is smiling, laughing, loving. Desmond puts his arm on my shoulder and when I turn, I can feel myself ready to burst. Oh, I am so grateful. The real Ben is breaking through. But it certainly isn't because of my presence. Are the women providing something the men can't? Are the antiquated courts actually just? 
in their centuries-old wisdom because fathers are no more than appendages, nice but hardly necessary? Or is it not about gender? Is it simply about me? Is Ben ready to jettison his father? Then my mother whispers something, and I see Ben turn. He's still smiling, only he's looking at me. Suddenly, he tears across the beauty parlor to me. He jumps, and I time it perfectly, and he's in my arms, and I kiss that unruly hair and hold him close. Welcome back, buddy. I missed you so much, and I love you so much. His words are muffled, and I gently lift his head from my neck. What, buddy? He looks into my eyes. Why didn't you call me? I refuse to add a beauty parlor to the list of public establishments I've cried in over the last four years during my incessant march into wussydom. But I can't say that aloud, or Katie will kick my ass. I called you every single day, every day, a quillion times a day, more than a quillion, a dozen times a day. I didn't know where you were. He hugs me tighter. I owe Desmond much more than dinner, but he accepts the invitation to my mother's place so we can order in Chinese. Family continues to drop by in the hours to come, first Chris, then Kevin and Nicole. By the time Tommy and Rosemary and the twins show up, we place a second call to Hunan Gardens. Ben is ravenous. I've never seen him so hungry, and he wants more beef on a stick. And to my mother's delight, He's willing to try broccoli and garlic sauce. I notice he no longer calls it green trees. My phone rings and I speak out loud, though not directly to anyone. It's her. Then I move to the kitchen. She comes to the point. When are you returning, Benjamin? The threat of imprisonment clearly hasn't dampened her brassiness. I breathe. Again. You should talk to your lawyer. This isn't what I asked. When will you return him? Well, actually, we will not be returning him. Not until the court determines visitation. As I said, you need to speak to your lawyer to determine a court date so you can work out visitation. Under the joint custody, there is no more joint custody. You broke that agreement. I have sole custody now. You really need to talk to a lawyer. Judge Westfall wants to talk to you. She pauses a moment. Let me speak to Benjamin, please. He's already in bed, I lie. All this has worn him out. There's no way I'm going to allow her brainwashing to continue before I can even have a decent conversation with Ben. Have him call me in the morning. Then she hangs up. Back in the dining room, Katie reads aloud her fortune cookie. A visitor will stay with you soon. My mother crosses herself, and Chris blows Katie a kiss as we silently wish for another overdue child. It's early, but everyone's exhausted. And since Tommy lives in Douglaston, it only makes sense he drops Desmond in Little Neck. I give my cousin a hug and tell him what I've never told him before, that I love him. He responds, 
God loves you, Mikey. We say our goodnights, and then my son and I walk home. On the sidewalk, Ben asks me to carry him. He's heavier than ever, of course, but I don't mind. Just as I lift him, I see our neighbor Jackie standing in the dark. I love you, Mike. I love you, Benji. As I carefully ascend our stoop, it hits me. I've lived in Mr. Hannity's house for a year now, but Ben's never seen it. Not even his own room, which has sat empty since the twins and I finished painting it last September. He's too tired for a tour tonight, but tomorrow awaits us. Finally, a tomorrow. Our first since forever. I'd already laid out new pajamas and a minion's toothbrush and a stuffed candidate to replace dog. We run through Ben's ablutions in the bathroom, and I lead him into bed. Finally, I sit down beside him. Daddy? Yeah, buddy? I'm sorry. Lovey's not stupid. The Beatles aren't stupid. I smile and brush that crazy hair off his forehead. We'll hit Vic the barber tomorrow. Shh. Don't worry. No worries, buddy. Now Ben seems to choke up. Can you sing to me, Daddy? You betcha. Anything you want. The one from the car. The one you shut off. Baby, you can drive. No, it comes later. The one about the people. Ah, I nod. In my life. Ben nods, too, and sniffles. Yeah, the other one. The favorite. The cockles. I hug him as hard as the law allows. You know, I think you're a little nutty. He smiles through his tears. Me? You're nutty. No, you're the nutty one, Mr. Sir Topham Hat. Did you really think this? Did you think you would come home and I'd tuck you in and then I wouldn't sing about Molly Malone? You really thought that? You must really be nutty. Ben closes his eyes. I love you, Daddy. I close my eyes as well. And I sing. I'm worried about Ben, and I speak to Paco about my son entering therapy. Ben may have been vacationing on the Riviera, but this whole event certainly took its toll on him. Paco says the good news is the way Ben forgave me so quickly for not calling him, as ludicrous as that sounds, indicates our bond is quite strong, even unbreakable. The details emerge in spurts, though some pieces will always be missing, and other pieces will never quite fit. Seven weeks earlier, she, Casper, and Ben left for the south of France, or Le Midi, as it's spelled in a deposition, and they spent a carefree summer. Later, they were in Dijon, where I would have staged a rescue of my son, even though I hate mustard. Whenever Ben asked to speak to his father, apparently he was told there was no answer. Eventually, I felt forced to show Ben my endless record of calls to Israel, and he grew silent. They hired the new Israeli attorney three days before leaving Israel for France. Her New York attorney faxed his termination upon learning Ben wouldn't return to JFK on schedule. Over the coming years, more details emerge, 
but nothing of significance is learned. The most pertinent question of all will remain unanswered, now and forever. Why? What was she thinking? What did she hope to gain? How could she not have anticipated I would respond? And most important, what of Ben? In the hallway outside the courtroom one afternoon, I violate my lawyer's advice and impulsively turn to her and formulate one word. Why? I'm trying to build a life for Benjamin and my family. What I don't know is the most cogent explanation will be offered next year, filtered from her to her lawyer to Hillary to me. The two attorneys will confer in Jamaica, and Hillary will ask, Barrister, a barrister, what her client was thinking. And her lawyer will shrug and say, She just never believed the father would fight it. Later, Hillary will say, I guess she really didn't know you. These late summer weeks are busy. Hillary keeps me apprised of court dates and filings, but there's little required now. The court orders supervised visitations, awkward encounters wherein one of my siblings and I stand nearby while she spends time with Ben in the Queen's Center Mall or the playground or the Central Park Zoo. They're miserable affairs for her, for me, and undoubtedly for Ben. But in its wisdom, the state of New York has decreed this for abduction cases. So be it. She barely speaks to me. After each visitation, I gently encourage Ben to express his feelings. But all the drama has led him to hold those feelings in rather close, which greatly worries me. Thankfully, he makes a new friend, Charlie, when a family from Korea moves in right next door to Mr. Hannity's. We remain busy, not just with haircuts, but with new clothes, a new pediatrician, a new dentist. There's also registration for kindergarten. As for NYU, I determine being a full-time working dad won't allow me to continue graduate school, at least not this year, so I'll defer that dream yet again. Eventually, I'll return to the LGA Tower, albeit under strict supervision. In the meantime, I pass my suspension working for my brother's construction company in a futile effort to stave off bankruptcy. I retrieve my old steel-tipped boots and hard hat, and Tommy assigns me to a project in Queens Village, tearing down a grocery store. Ben joins me some days and plays in Tommy's trailer while I collect scrap metal. Among the many injustices of this brutal summer is the vacation my son and I were cheated out of in New Jersey. So just before kindergarten starts, I take Ben for a weekend down the shore. After he tells his mother we're going away, she asks where. I quote her own email. Somewhere warm. I'd be lying if I didn't acknowledge that I'm looking forward to this court appearance. It's not about anger or vengeance or cruelty. It's about being human. The urge to see justice done at long last flows through my veins. Only those who can't imagine suffering through the pain of July and August can't conceive of such an urge. 
she's hired yet another attorney, and it's time to step up and feel the wrath of Judge Westfall, the same Judge Westfall who granted me sole custody and found her in contempt of court. Now we'll hear exactly what punishment awaits on those contempt and perjury charges. According to Hillary, judges get quite pissed when their edicts are ignored. Katie sits a few rows behind me, ready to text my family about the verdict. And just like that, it's moot, or mute. The judge's nasal assistant reads a short statement. All pending charges are dismissed since the child was returned to Queens County. The sole custody agreement will remain in place and Ben will remain with me, but the judge strongly urges both parties to work together in the best interest of the child. Supervised visitation will continue for now. We're all to return in six weeks. Six weeks, less time than Ben was missing. I turn toward Hillary and then toward Katie. My lawyer closes her briefcase. That's it? I ask. Hillary shrugs. That's justice. I'm stunned. Forget about me. What of the pain she caused Ben? Is there no justice to be doled out here on earth, right in Queens? But Hillary's expression makes it clear it is not to be. And I will soon wonder, is her greatest punishment living with her own actions? So I breathe deep and swallow my vindictiveness. Again. In the hall beside Katie, I ask Hillary what's next. My lawyer smiles. Mike, what's next is you should sit back, relax, enjoy your son, enjoy life. Ben and I are painting the second bedroom in the apartment Katie and Chris just bought in Murray Hill. Since it's near a stretch featuring a dozen Indian restaurants, the locals refer to it as Curry Hill. Overall, square footage-wise, this place is smaller than their one-bedroom in Chelsea, and our integrated services digital network studio is smaller. But the critical component is the room we're standing in, the bedroom social workers will evaluate on behalf of someone not yet born. However, work slows after Ben spots the Sherwin-Williams can, and we discuss primer versus paint. We selected a limeade green, and Ben's job is to put masking tape on doorknobs, but not electrical outlets, which he's not allowed to touch. Katie silently elbows me. The closet door has sprung a goiter under Ben's nine layers of tape. I ease the roller into the pan of green goo and remember Gina's comments on gender and the use of blue and pink to subtly guide babies onto male and female tracks. I never did call Gina, even though more than a month has passed. At one point, she called me, and we spoke for two pleasant hours, but I didn't follow up after. Of course, I've thought of her every single day since, in that painful way of poking at a fresh wound. I thought and thought about her, and I concluded that to me, she is simply perfect, which is the worst imperfection of all. Naturally, perfection means long-term, she'll want nothing to do with me. I just consider myself lucky I dodged yet another train wreck so early. 
It stings when I think of Gina, but I'm still in one piece. Back at work, I'm in my new role as a supervised basket case. I stare at the NATCA bulletin board, the usual health warnings and labor union propaganda. Then I spot a notice and freeze. The FAA's annual recruitment of controllers to compete for Air Venture Oshkosh, the coolest of cool air shows, held every summer in Wisconsin. For controllers, this is the Oscar, the Pulitzer, the Nobel. Many compete, but only a handful are chosen. Over several days, they work the busiest control tower on the planet as more than 8,000 aircraft from World War II fighters to experimental spacecraft continually land and depart. The 78 privileged few selected are given fluorescent pink polo shirts worn with the reverence of the Medal of Honor. For years, my supervisors suggested I was capable not only of competing, but of serving in Oshkosh. With marriage and fatherhood, I deferred, but didn't abandon applying. Now it hits me. Due to my dismal performance this year, I'll never be tapped for a pink shirt. In the land where every child is indoctrinated that becoming president is within reach, big dreams don't die easy. Then again, this isn't the first time I've had to face the reality something I deeply wished for will never happen. So, I focus elsewhere, like the New York Mets in the World Series for the first time in 15 years, with a starting rotation for the ages. For once, Hillary couldn't be more prescient in her legal analysis. She's absolutely right. I should just sit back, relax, enjoy my son, enjoy life itself. But like any true Mets fan, of course I can't fully relax, and I have trouble enjoying. Even before Kansas City clinches in five games, I'm already worried about an unhappy outcome, and I realize enjoying life doesn't come easily to me now. So I will myself to plunge in. I have my son. All the rest flows from this. Ben is more than enough for me to enjoy a full life. He's everything.